The later pictures are much more shocking when you come across them, but the early yearbooks are it's they're sickening to go page by page and have that material wash over you. This is Kurt Vondack. He's a history professor at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. And I am the co-chair of both the President's Commission on Slavery in the University and the President's Commission on the University in the Age of Segregation. For six years, Vondack has helped lead research on UVA's disturbing history with slavery. More recently, his team extended its timeline into the 20th century with a focus on a specific part of the university's past. When the new commission hired a program officer, the first task I put her on was go into the yearbooks. This is in November. So she began working on the yearbooks page by page, year by year, and I was collecting the uh, university magazines and alumni news and bulletins. So we had been on this project for about two and a half months when the uh, Governor Northam scandal brought everyone's attention to what might be lurking in the yearbooks. I talked with Fondak about blackface and white supremacist imagery in UVA yearbooks and what he's seen at other schools. In December, to get a sense of was what we were seeing in the UVA yearbooks normal, I began looking at yearbooks from the 1880s on at other Virginia schools. And unsurprisingly, the material that's so prevalent in the UVA yearbook appears in other yearbooks. There's a lot more of it in the UVA yearbook and a lot more of it in UVA student publications where they're talking about blackface minstrelsy, they're drawing cartoons, and they're really personalizing it in a way. It's got a very local and particular quality to it that they're talking about uh, Charlottesville people and uh, kind of development in Charlottesville in a way that I didn't see in other yearbooks in the state. How do you explain that difference? Well, the university by 1860 is in many ways, right, it's an incubator for pro-slavery thought, and with that comes the dedication to white supremacy. We shouldn't be surprised that in 1865, when former Confederate students return to the university, that they pick up right where they left off. And you see this pretty clearly in the student publications uh, as soon as they return to publication about 1868, that they are talking about racial hierarchy, they're talking about white rule. And by the 1880s, this is uh, kind of a, it feels like an all-encompassing passion uh, of students and the community locally. And what about when you go beyond the formerly Confederate states. Uh, what uh, Have you looked at any yearbooks in the North or in the West? Yes. So I've looked mostly at some yearbooks in the Northeast just to get a sense. It, it appears there as well. Again, nothing like what you find at Southern schools or at Virginia. And it tends not to appear at many schools until about 1915. That seems to be – I don't know if this is the case, but I, uh, my, my gut instinct tells me it has something to do with Birth of a Nation and Wilson's screening of that in the White House that really brings this to the forefront of the national conversation. Corks and Curls, the name of the yearbook. What does that mean? The first meeting is speaking to local student parlance for how students perform in class. Corking is in the description. Uh, It's the corked bottle. When you're called on, cold called in class and don't know the answer or give the wrong answer, you have corked. When you amazingly know the correct answer and expound upon your knowledge in classroom, that's curling. But in 1888, when they formed the yearbook, there's a double entendre very clearly lurking there. So the other 
interpretation of a cork and a curl? Is is reference to the burnt cork used in blackface minstrel performance and curls to the wigs they would have worn in performing. And so I think for students in 1888, corks and curls speaks to both the uh, history about classroom performance and to what's really common at UVA at the time, right? In 1888, the university has a minstrel troupe. The Glee Club performs in blackface. And the yearbooks that include other theatrical groups and music groups all use blackface imagery in their yearbook pages. So we know as historians that by the 1920s, Virginia, as is the case for all the other southern states, has embraced Jim Crow segregation. Do things change in the yearbook as a result of that? Oh, no. Now, the, the teens and 20s are the high watermark of the appearance of this material. I, th- I think, again, unsurprisingly, given the both statewide and national context, I think the high watermark is, I think it's 1916, and it's 35 separate images in a single yearbook. So this is an order of magnitude more than you see in most other yearbooks. It's, it's pretty disturbing. I'm drowning here, Kurt. How far do we need to advance the tape to get a glimmer of change? There are references to student activism in the 30s that suggest there are people pushing back against the dominant narrative. And it's pretty clear by the early 1950s that this is now a theme. The Cavalier Daily, the student newspaper starting in the early 1950s, begins to call out in particular fraternities for racism and sexism. And so you you can hear an alternative narrative uh, emerging pretty clearly in the 50s. And in 1970, I'm struck by how prescient this is in a way. The Cavalier Daily publishes in October an editorial entitled Racist Attitudes, and it's about the deployment of the Confederate flag at student events. And so I think it's very clear between 52 or 53 and 1970 that there there are different narratives emerging. And what about the frequency of uh, blackface in the yearbook itself, I gather that there are more images beginning in the 50s and 60s. There there are. In general, that very specific blackface performance that uh, we we associate with blackface minstrelsy, it really seems to fade away in the 1930s. But difficult imagery does not go away. And there's some really troubling imagery uh, that reappears in the 1970s in the yearbook in particular. It's early 1970s. Could you describe what you found? It's the 1971 yearbook. So this is the 1970-1971 academic year. There's the, the most disturbing image is easily one fraternity's two-page spread. And at that point in the yearbooks, the fraternities typically get two pages. One is a composite or a group photo. And then some photos of some of their activities and a, a list of names. Uh, This fraternity's image is a two-page spread. One page is a staged lynching with people in black. They look to me a lot like Klan robes, but they're black. And they're wearing pointed hats, Yes, oh, they are. Again, it's hard to tell because there's no context provided, but they sure look like black Klan robes to me. I think that's what they're meant to evoke. And they're standing in a forest clearing. There's a rope running along the ground through them. Several of them are brandishing rifles. And then above them, hanging in a tree, is a white person in a white robe 
who looks like they've been done up in blackface minstrel makeup and uh, is hanging from a tree. And the other page is all black with, in white, a quote from a Frank Zappa song that, to paraphrase, is, I don't know, I don't know what it's like to be black in this country, but sometimes I wish I weren't white. And that's, that's the entire spread. How do you interpret that quotation? The song, interestingly, is from 1966, and it's a song in sympathy with the Watts Rebellion that also includes the line, they just want to do you in because of the color of your skin. So again, hard to tell. We don't know because they don't provide any other context clues, but I think they're lynching Frank Zappa, that it's a a white man with curly hair and facial hair, and that's who they're actually lynching. So this is in resistance to um, civil rights and anyone who is in sympathy with the African-American demand for equality in this country. Your blood runs cold when you see it. It's really hard to imagine how anyone in 1971 could think that image was appropriate. It's just shocking. But not surprising, right? This is the – there are at least three staged lynchings that appear in UVA yearbooks dating back to 1914. Well, excuse me, in UVA publications. The controversy over Virginia's governor and attorney general and relationship to blackface stems back to the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Are, are you still finding – blackface images in the UVA yearbook in the 1980s? You see culturally inappropriate images. You see skin darkening at themed costume parties. So there are, I I don't know if they're Polynesian or Hawaiian parties, but you you see men in grass skirts who've tanned their skin. You see there's a a Beaux-Arts ball that goes on. It seems to be every year. And one year the theme is, I think this is 81, is uh, an Egyptian theme, and there's a picture of someone who looks like they're dressed up as Lawrence of Arabia, and they've tanned their skin for the image. But you don't see those very explicit blackface images in your books. I don't think this means it goes away. The The change in the 1970s is the school becomes co-educational in 1970. And as uh, women assume leadership roles, including at the yearbook, the look and feel of the yearbook changes uh, rather dramatically in the 70s. So you're speculating that the yearbook itself began to exercise some editorial control over the content. Yes. The speculation for this comes about that that 71 image is at a very particular moment in UVA's history. It's the That's the first year of undergraduate co-education at UVA. It's also at that point in a short and not very robust integration effort, the largest incoming African-American class in UVA's history at that point. I find it not surprising, given the history of the yearbook and the culture at UVA, that there are there's clear resistance to both of those changes amongst the white male student body. Well, surely coeducation didn't come out of nowhere. So, what kind of images in the yearbook regarding gender uh, have you found in your survey? There are, and this stretches well into the 1980s and beyond. There are often. Uh, inappropriate pictures of uh, students, men and women at parties where clearly drinking has been involved and there are men reaching up skirts. There are women passed out. In the yearbook? Yes. I I have to confess, I'm not an expert on yearbooks. No. I'm not sure that I've looked at my own more than twice in my life. What's the section that that is in? It varies. That's what's interesting. It's whenever there are pictures of social events, whether they are 
Uh, fraternity parties or organizational parties, you see these pictures. You see them, and they're often taken not at the university, but at other local venues. Right. And so they they just appear as sort of part of the wallpaper of student social life at the university. But they also appear in staged images. In that 1971 yearbook, there's also a fraternity picture that we had to we had to really look closely to figure out what was going on. It's a, a group of of the men in the fraternity uh, all standing and sitting in a room somewhere, and they have uh, white material around their mouths. And we th- we stopped and said we thought it might be blackface, but then we realized there was no other none of the other context clues about blackface were there, and no one had darkened their skin. And we zoomed in, and then we realized it was either – it must be whipped cream around their mouths. And we kept looking at the image, and they appeared to be standing around a table in the middle of the room that has a huge pile of whipped cream on it. It still didn't make sense. And then we zoomed in, and it appears to be a naked woman covered from the neck to her ankles in whipped cream. Oh, my God. And um, uh, so they – and this is part of that weird moment in 7071 where white male students, some of them are deeply resistant to co-education. And then you have combined with that, these images that are deeply resistant to integration as well. Do you look at current yearbooks? We've looked at yearbooks all the way to the last few years. And I, I love it. You mentioned your own yearbooks. I went and dug my high school yearbooks out and didn't find anything. Um, I think there's some questionable costume choices here and there, but no blackface um, imagery. But this, I've seen yearbooks in Colorado in the 80s that involve the use of the clan hoods as part of uh, a student pep squad. So this is not a story confined to UVA or confined to Charlottesville. Kurt Vondack is a professor of history and assistant dean in the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Virginia. Nathan, Ed, I was really struck by that polling data we referred to earlier in the show. About a third of Americans think it's always or at least sometimes acceptable for a white person to wear blackface on Halloween. So when I look at people who are okay with dressing up in blackface on Halloween, it seems like they're viewing it as though it's any other costume and You know, I hate to play the history card here, but it seems like what they're missing is the very deep historical connection of the meaning of blackface over time. Yeah, but I think they may actually have a historical understanding that it's been widespread in the past. So Hmm. what's wrong Hmm. with it now? (laughs) You know, everybody knows about Al Jolson. You've seen sort of seen that picture, right? And I mean, Amos and Andy was one of the most popular shows on early American television. So, you know, it's not like it was underground or something. You know, Eric Lott, with whom uh, we spoke earlier, uh, his book on blackface, it was called Love and Theft. And I think he got something important then, which is that 
a lot of the white people who dress up this way, whether it's as, you know, the Williams sisters or Curtis Blow or Michael Jackson, claim they're doing it out of respect and affection for those people. So I, I think the confusions are multiple, Brian, is that they don't really have any sense of how this has been associated in the past with really corrosive racism. And they also don't understand how their own actions are anything other than good-natured adoption of the persona people they claim mm-hmm. to admire. I mean, the, the moment is, is one where we're kind of figuring out what the new standard is around this blackface symbolism. So, you know, I was really surprised when USA Today ran a major spread um, in the wake of the immediate you know, news around Northam where they looked at 900 different yearbooks around the country. And they found, obviously, you know, rife with examples um, of blackface and Klan iconography and, you know, reenacted lynchings. I mean, you know, the, the, ran, ran the whole gamut of things that were seemingly benign, you know, blackface performances to overt reenactments of, of racial terrorism. There were several things that were striking about this. One was the, the way in which so many of the folks who had performed in these various, you know, costume moments were, you know, lawyers and doctors, and they, they occupied every rung of society. And, and the study looked at any manner of universities, from community colleges to liberal arts schools in the Northeast to southern state schools and the like. And what was kind of wild footnote of the story itself, the spread, was that the editor-in-chief of USA Today found that she, too, had published these photos as a college student in a yearbook that she was editing um, many years ago as an undergraduate. And so it led to this, you know, extraordinary kind of, you know, soul-searching moment about just how um, nested the history of blackface imagery was in the 1980s and how she didn't even recall publishing these images, but it felt, you know, like she had been, you know, really shamed by the reality of her link to this past. And so it's just, you know, one of these moments where, you know, folks who are living through the 80s and 90s who are donning blackface are at that time not seeing it as out of bounds. And yet here we are only 20 or 30 years removed, and now that in itself is seemingly, you know, grounds for dismissal from any number of, you know, respectable posts. And so I guess, you know, this reminds me in some ways of the conversation we had, you know, feels like ages ago around Confederate monuments, right? Which is to say, is there a point at which you're supposed to go back and reinterpret the meaning of these older symbols for a new time? Yeah, and I, what I would wonder uh, is how much we've changed since the 80s or 90s. You mm-hmm. know, I think you're right, Ned, that it seems like a long time ago that we were talking about these Confederate memorials. And yet that had been triggered by an event or two. We think of the Dylan Roof shooting in the summer of 2015, right? right? And so it's like these combustible materials are, are laying all around us. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they combust and sometimes they don't. And you can't tell what's going to be the the spark right. for it all. But, you know, I think those of us in higher education know that every year it seems that there are white fraternity boys, by and large, mm. caught uh, on camera in blackface and are shocked, they proclaim, to understand that this is offensive. How can the message simply not get out? There is something about the carnivalesque around Halloween. Like, what is it about 
black people that make them suitable subjects for costumes. And this is where I think the Eric Lott discussion is is really useful because there are very specific kinds of blackface performance. If you think back to the way that the minstrel figure was really grammatically the same in terms of their inability to form proper sentences, always smiling, right? There was a certain template that's there. People are not dressing up on Halloween like Colin Powell, right? They're not dressing up on on Halloween like a a figure that could be regarded as, you know, a black CEO or, you know, in in some cases, you know, not even like, say, Oprah Winfrey, unless they want to, you know, make other kinds of satire a part of that performance, right? it's It's about, you know, people who are athletes or, um, you know, particular kinds of entertainers, particularly around urban black culture. I mean, that I think is is where it's important to at least, you know, get underneath the seemingly harmless performances, which is to say, what is it about becoming a basketball player in, you know, um, like a kind of quote unquote ghetto outfit that would seemingly be um, okay as a form of performance? That wouldn't be the case if you were trying to appropriate some other form of black life or culture. Well, I'll just ask the question. I'm wondering whether either of you has any direct personal experience um, with blackface. Well, so I grew up in the segregated South and uh, went to an all-white school. And uh, in second grade, I was selected with another boy to be put in blackface for a school program with the sixth-grade glee club singing uh, spirituals. And I was up there with a white cardboard uh, top hat and a tambourine in pitch black paint on my face. Mm. This is 1960. And the fact that, you know, this is the same years, the sit-ins and long after Montgomery. And I have often marveled that it was seen as an event of great hilarity uh, by my friends, and even by my family, um, who thought it was fine for me to be up there. So I don't know really what to do with that, Mm -hmm. except Mm -hmm. to remind us that how white people can just not be paying attention. (laughs) Right. Or maybe they are paying attention. And this blackface is not just absence. Maybe it's not just innocence, but maybe it is a form of aggression in and of itself. I'm not sure what a second grade boy is doing, but the fact that they would use us as props mm-hmm. and thinking that it was fun to do that, I think just tells you about something malignant in that culture at that time. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a hell of a story. And I think it actually really crystallizes just the way that you contextualize it. It, it crystallizes the point, which is that, you know, minstrelsy is meant to take the place of politics, Right. All of these periods where we're talking, I mean, you know, the, the 1830s when minstrelsy is emerging, it, it's a time when there's still a free black population that's demanding a certain kind of citizenship. You know, certainly at the end of the 19th century, there's all kinds of reasons to want to make sure that blackface is a dominant form of political performance or apolitical performance, rather, um, because of the way that disenfranchisement is is everywhere for African Americans. And I could see quite easily why something like the 1980s would be a, a point where blackface imagery is is everywhere because, you know, you have a post-civil rights moment where people are trying to figure out whether or not things like affirmative action should still be in place. I mean, universities, right? That's not an incidental location, I don't think, in that way. 
you know, and, and now obviously, you know, the question of blackface comes up precisely because we've had a, a, a new political breakthrough with, you know, Obama and other black officials, you know, rising to new heights. And I wonder if people are saying, you know what, you can't put the, the political genie back in the bottle. And so out with, you know, any number of old ways of dampening the, the political conversation around what black folk can do um, and achieve. And ironically, in this particular instance in Virginia, it's come up through history, through these mm-hmm. old yearbooks, and to give the public officials the benefit of the doubt in terms of what they're saying today, they're deeply embarrassed and deeply regret having participated in this. And that the fallout is potentially political is also not an accident, right? It's, it's not about whether or not someone can issue an apology, but the demand for one's resignation from public office, I think, really just sharpens the political content of what blackface has always been about. And when the demand comes from fellow party members who are worried about the fallout for the party as a whole rather than the individual who's been mm. caught in blackface— is another interesting dynamic of this, you know, that, and once you've let that genie out of the bottle, uh, you know, the Democratic senators of Virginia can't put it back in either. Mm. The efforts of people of goodwill, white people of goodwill to show their solidarity, you know, ends up (laughs) entangling them in lots of different ways they could not have anticipated. And one does wonder uh, if this dilemma for white people of goodwill Uh, lets some white people of not such goodwill off the hook. We know that we're living in an era of rising white nationalism, of all kinds of public symbols around that white nationalism, and uh, in an era of explicit appeals to white nationalists and white supremacist thought. And I do think that very dilemma that both of you referred to for white people of goodwill really makes it all the more difficult to address perhaps people who don't have such goodwill on the racial front. Yeah, and the irony is compound, Brian. The same medical school that produced the annual in which Governor Northam appeared has been singled out for its recent gains in diversity and Mm. a a culture of acceptance in promoting African-American doctors. So who knows where this is all going to lead? If there's one thing in American history that seems to have no limitations of complexity, it's this. 